Psalm 131. And this is a psalm of the lowly Christian. The lowly Christian. Notice in verse 1 it says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in, in great matters or in things too high for me. It tells me that a man ought to know where he stands and not to think above himself. You know, Paul says in Romans 12 verse 3 that not to think uh, more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. And a haughty spirit indicates pride. It says, Lord, my heart is not haunty. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haunty spirit before fall. And we've seen this happen time and time again. You know, fellas, uh, they get all puffed up. My kids used to have a little record. And it's talking about the frog, you know. And he says, he puffed and he puffed and he puffed and he puffed until he puffed himself out. And suddenly he burst, you know. And then when a frog puffs himself out, so suddenly he bursts. Well, we do not need a haunty spirit in any one of us. And we have to guard against that as human beings. Paul says, I'm least of the apostles and, not, and I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Remember? Least of the apostles. And then he says, I'm less than the least. Imagine the beloved apostle Paul says, I'm less than the least of all saints. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If a man like the Apostle Paul looked at all the saints and he says, I'm less than the least of them, and God has given me this grace to be able to preach among the Gentiles. My, what a, a man of character to put himself in such a position and really mean it. And then finally he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, acceptation that by acceptance by all, to be accepted by all, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Look at the three steps in Paul's life. He says, I'm least of the apostles. Well, one out of twelve is not too bad, is it? But then he says, less than the least of all saints. I mean, that's really coming down a notch. And then he says, of sinners of whom I'm chief. That's seeing yourself where you need to see. And then Paul said in Romans 12, verse 3, that a man ought not to think of himself, and we quoted that at the first, more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, when he said think soberly, he meant to simply think on terms of, of reason as to what your worth is. It doesn't mean that being humble, that you need to be a doormat for anyone. But it also doesn't mean that you do not need to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But to think soberly, and that's that middle ground, that you're not better than the next fellow, but you're just as good. You're not worse than the next fellow, but you're just as good. You see, a level middle ground of the dignity of man and of your own uh, value and worth. And God thinks you're worth something, so you ought to think you're worth something. Now then, and notice it says... Nor mine eyes lofty, a lowly ambition. His eyes were not lofty. Uh, if you read in uh, Romans chapter, I mean, not Romans, but Luke chapter 14, if you remember, Jesus said, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's verse 11. And he's telling them about uh, a situation when you're invited to a wedding feast and you are not to sit in the highest room. You take the lowest room, and then uh, when the the, uh, the host comes in, he can say, well, you know, you ought to come up hither, come up higher. But if you take your position and then you're brought up higher, 
accept the position that you're given. But don't go up higher and think, look, I deserve this first place. When maybe he'll say, well, you know, you belong back in another little side corner over here. They put you in another place. So the thing about it is, uh, we need to realize that God is the one that sets us in our proper place. Then the last part of this verse, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. You know, a conceited man tries to do that for which he is not qualified. He tries to do something that he's not qualified to do. How many times have you seen people try to do things they're not qualified to do? We see that in the, uh, all in the, the uh, professional world, in the uh, secular world, in the uh, people that are, uh, have various trades. We see a fellow come out there. You know, I had a fellow come on the job one time and he didn't know which end of the square to use or how to even use a level. And he was a carpenter. You know, you, he didn't know which the level, way the level went. He, well, it goes that way and he kept pushing it that way. Well, you know, it won't go any further. You've got to come back. But, you know, there's a lot of guys that are, and you know, there's people all over that try to do something and they'll classify themselves a great deal higher than they really are. And that's a danger. Now, it doesn't mean you should take a back seat to things, but you always learn, and as you learn, then you're qualified as you go along. And we preach Sunday that Paul said, The things that thou hast heard of me, commit unto faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. And Paul was a good teacher and a, and a strong teacher. But he taught Timothy, and he says, Timothy, now you teach others that they may be able to teach others also. And that's our business. And we're the link, and we said this Sunday morning, we're the link in the, in the generation from past to the future. You and I are that living link in the chain. And what did we have that we did not receive from those that went before us? Not one thing in the world. You know, the word education means to lead out. It means to lead out of someone what they have within them. And to teach, that's what you do. You lead it out of people. And you bring out the best of them and, and you, you cause them to learn on the basis of their ability to learn. And then uh, we find that furthermore, there are many scriptures that uh, tell us about that. Uh, Jesus, in dealing with a centurion that had a servant, he, he told Jesus, he said, I'm not worthy. He sent, sent messengers out, says, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. And yet he was a great man. He said, he says to one, come, and he comes, and one to go, and he goes. But he says to Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. In the book of First Samuel, or Second Samuel chapter 15, we find Absalom going out as he went out against David. Look at this. In verse uh, chapter 15, in verse 1, it says, it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. Chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king, they were going to David for judgment. It says, then Absalom called unto him. Now they were headed for David, the king, good king David. And Absalom was David's son, but he was trying to rend the kingdom from David. And so Absalom called unto them and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said moreover, now look at this verse, 
Oh, that that I were made judge in the land. You see that conceit? As if David was not able. Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which had any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And you go on, and the whole story of his deception is to steal the hearts. It says in verse 6, And on this matter did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, he thought he was really qualified in this area, and that David was not. And you know, that, that is conceit on his part. David was experienced. David knew what the people needed. David was a man of judgment. And you know, you find that happening so many times in various realms. Now then, let's look at verse 2 in our psalm. By the way, I was going to teach. I had four psalms prepared. We covered one verse. But look at verse 2. It says, Surely surely I have behaved and quieted myself. Look at that. I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. See, a mature Christian is like a weaned child. He's not yet like an infant. But he says, as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. A mature Christian is like a weaned child. He's still not carnal. As babes, remember Paul spoke to the Corinthians and he says uh, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, if, you'll, if you don't look, uh, have time to look, we'll just listen to it. Verses 1 through 4, uh, Paul said, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. They had not grown. They were still uh, not uh, listening to the Word, not feeding upon the Word, not growing in grace. And he said, you know, we need babies, but we don't need them to remain that way. They need to grow. And when they get off milk, they take on strong meat and solid foods. So it says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, neither yet now are you able. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing to have to speak to a church as Paul did and say, you're not even able yet to bear anything but just milk, the infant food? I'm glad here we have more mature Christians, and I think that uh, we are trying to become more mature all the time. But it would be awful to have to speak to babies all the time and feed them with a bottle, feed them with milk, let them be breastfed. It says in verse 3, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal, and walk as men? For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are ye not carnal? In other words, they worshipped one guy above the other. There was party, partyism among them. And uh, so they, they were not grown. Those who do not grow in grace are like, like babes. Remember, Peter says, as newborn babes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Listen carefully. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. The word sincere means unadulterated or pure. It means, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So baby Christians need to desire the, the good of Word of God so that they can grow. And then Paul tells the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 12 it says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. He said, by this time you ought to be teachers. And he says, you're become such that you have need of 
milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. That means of a habit or perfection. That means uh, perfect. It doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, but it means mature and full grown. But strong meat belongeth them to our full age, even to those who by reason of use, use the Scriptures, know the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Louise just finished last night her Bible the 30th time all the way through. Many times, nearly all the way through. 30 times. And this 30th time, she started January 1st. And she'll read it through another time before the end of the year. She reads her Bible. We all need to read it. She puts me to shame on reading it. I study it, but preachers get caught up in moving to another place. I don't know, but we just do. Because we find something that's interested we want to preach on or teach about, or some doctrine or some, some uh, situation, and go and carry it out. But she reads it. And reading uh, feeds your soul too, doesn't it? Okay, anyway, uh, so we need to grow in grace and not be babes. We Christians know how to behave. Notice what it said here in our text. Hold your place where we're studying. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. Look at that. I have behaved and quieted myself. Paul told Timothy, he says, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. And he's talking in a full spiritual sense of the word. How to behave ourselves in study. How to behave ourselves in, in fellowship. How to behave ourselves in love. How to behave ourselves in worship. In our spirituality. How to behave ourselves in the house of God. You know, there are many houses of God that people do not behave themselves. You know what I'm talking about. You need to learn how to behave yourself in the house of God. And that's what Paul told him. He said that thou mayest know how that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the what? Church of the living God. And he says that it's the pillar and ground of the truth. You know why the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth? Because from generation to generation, from one age to another, it's been passed on down through the local churches, those doctrines of grace and of faith for which we stand this very day that the apostles and Jesus and John the Baptist stood for in the days when they were upon this earth. I believe in a local New Testament Baptist church. I believe in a local body of baptized believers contending for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And beloved, any time we think that this whole world is going to be one unity before Jesus comes, you're fooling yourself unless you think it's going to be unified in the wrong direction. And then you're probably true because it's going to be unified under apostasy. That's where the unity will be. Because any time you and I stand for the doctrines of faith and grace, those that do not stand for those same things are automatically divided. This business of Christian unity at any cost, it just won't work. This new uh, promise keeper situation is break down all the walls of denominationalism. Well, you're just not going to do that, friend, and stay true to God. You know why you're not going to do that? Because you take uh, Roman Catholics, Charismatics, uh, all different, uh, the, even the cults are participating. And all denominations says, let's break down the walls. And let's just uh, shout it out. And say, everyone, break down the walls of denominationalism. Any preacher with a little bit of enthusiasm can get up and cause you to shout that and 
Five minutes if he has an ounce of enthusiasm about it. But what are you doing? You're shouting out something that is not real and is not doctrinal and is not scriptural. See, that's, that stuff just won't work in this world today. The Bible tells us that we should earnestly contend for the faith. That doesn't mean we don't love one another. We are to love one another. But, you know, I have a hard time having real fellowship with a fellow that believes in that, that you turn the body and blood, uh, turn the, the bread and wine into the actual body and blood of Christ and believe in this transubstantiation uh, so that it actually, by miracle of the priest that says the word, turns it into that because the Bible teaches that it's symbolical. Then I have a hard time fellowshipping with a fellow that believes that you have to be baptized in order to be saved when baptism is, is uh, symbolical of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and is the answer of a good conscience toward God and has the Bible implications of what it means. I have a hard time fellowshipping with that guy. You say, well, they're all getting together. Let them get together. Brother, they can pour all in that stew pot they want and just stir it around. It's full of poison. It's going to have to be salted down like in the days of Elisha and get rid of the poison or it's going to kill everybody. That's where you're headed. That's where this, this promise keepers is headed. You say, well, some independent Baptist churches are participating. I can't help it. That's their business. That's their problem. And I'm here telling you that it's not scriptural. And if you look into it, you'll find it's not scriptural. Because there's all kinds of beliefs trying to be mixed together and sacrifice your convictions for the sake of saying we love Jesus. That's what it's all about. Well, we love Jesus too. But the Bible still says those that uh, depart from the doctrines, He says, mark them and avoid them. It says avoid them. Beloved, there's going to be a day that you and I are not going to be able to recognize even the Scriptures that I quote to you tonight because of the liberalism as far as the versions of the Bible are coming in 20 years from now. In fact, I was reading, I was sitting in the dentist's office Monday while my wife was in the dentist chair waiting and I took the Gideon Bible and I, this is disappointing and I'm going to talk to them about it when they come this, this summer they'll want to be here in June I think I forget the date I've already gotten a letter and I'm going to let them come but the, it was a new King James version of the Bible and I could hardly recognize what I was reading I was reading in the Psalms these Psalms that I'm talking about here right now it says uh, let me get on down if you'd even start I think about, uh, well, I can't find the exact words that I want to, but it's called you and yours and his, speaking of God. It doesn't say, Lord, thou art God. It removes all the uh, uh, reverence out of it. And I'm talking about the new King James Version. I don't see how there can be a new King James Version when King James ain't here anymore, pardon the English. As if he is going to make a new one. That means that they've made one and they called it by his name, but he didn't have anything to do with it. And the men that he put on the on the committee to set in uh, the group that he assembled, the scholars to to make the version of the Bible. You see, it is kind of dumb, isn't it? When you start getting the details and start thinking about it, and you know, it's not only that one. That's one of the best. I'm talking about one of the better ones. You say, well, preacher, I'd rather ha- they'd have some Bible than no Bible at all. I'd rather they have the the Bible. I'd rather have the Word of God at least where I could recognize what they're quoting when they quote a verse of Scripture. And I'm telling you that uh, it's all the versions out there. There'll be a day, and I'd say 15, 10, 20, 10 years from now, if the Lord tears is coming, 
And at the most 20 years from now, you won't be able to recognize when the preacher gets up and reads the Scripture, whether it's the Bible or not. You won't even know it unless you remain true to the King James Version. But, you know, we've got all this stuff going on. Uh, where did I... I was in verse 2, wasn't I? Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned. We've talked about how Timothy said that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The reason it's going to remain the pillar and ground of the truth, there's going to be some local, independent, Bible-believing churches that will stand for what the word of truth is and for the, the doctrines of grace and the articles of faith that we have, what we believe about God, what we believe about the Scriptures, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about baptism, what we believe about the Lord's Supper, what we believe about missions, what we believe about local church uh, uh, polity, how, uh, policy, well, we'll say government in this sense, that it's a democracy, as all of you exercised your rights here tonight to vote accordingly. See, there's all kinds of, of church government. But the thing about it is, we'll find that there's, there's going to be a change. Uh, I started to preach the other day on uh, church, uh, the Baptist way and the church way. When we talk about the way of church government, there's Episcopalians. The Episcopalian type is government by bishops. The Presbyterian is government by presbyteries or preachers. But then there's congregational, and that's government by the people. That means a pure democracy. That means that's what we are. We're congregationalists as far as church government is concerned. And it's government by the people. A pure democracy. The, the preachers do not govern you. The bishops do not govern you. So, it's a congregationalist is what we are. Now then, back to verse 2. It says, Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Now look at verse 3. It says, let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. The hope of Israel was in the Lord. The Bible says in uh, the book of Hosea chapter 13 and verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. In me is thine help. Where is our hope today? Our hope is in the Lord, isn't it? We've been praying about everything, every situation, and you know God is... It's almost miraculous the way God has done things for us of a late. And we're praying for continued relief of uh, those that are sick among us. And uh, sometimes we just don't know what the Lord's will in one's life. But we do not want people to have to suffer like Troy and Vicki Dyseven and this lady that Alicia was praying about and, and different ones. And there are others that, and you know, the other situations are troubling it, that are troubling in our church and those that are in need of our prayers. But God is doing things for us. And we have evidence on it every, on every side. And the thing about it is, we need to realize our hope is in the Lord. The Bible says that the Gentiles in the flesh are without hope and without Christ and without with no hope and without God in the world. But it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off, that was the Gentiles, and talk, according from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So we're brought nigh so that we have hope. But we as Gentiles were afar off. Let me read that for you in the book of Galatians, not Galatians, but Ephesians chapter 2. Let me begin reading with verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye, that ye, that's us, being in time past, that was the Ephesian church, 
Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But it says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So, our condition of having no hope, being without Christ, and having no hope, and without God in the world, was changed from, having, from that condition to now in Christ Jesus. It says, Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, that's Jew and Gentile, the Jew and Gentile, and that He might reconcile both, both Jew and Gentile, unto God, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, that was the Jews. For through Him we both, both Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, unto the Father. Now therefore ye are, you Gentiles, are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles, they were the foundation of the church, and the prophets, New, Test New Testament prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye, who's he talking to? The Ephesian church. Ye also are builded together for an habitation of God in the Spirit. Every several building and every particular assembly is builded together in habitation of God through the Spirit. And by the way, lest somebody get some fancy ideas, this is local church business that we're talking about. This is local church is talking about. Every local church. What's said of one and what's true of one is true of each in every local church. It is an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he says, ye, listen, you, ye, plural, are the temple of God. Ye are the temple of God. Then he says, your body, no, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? So both the Corinthian church as a local assembly, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. But you individually have Christ dwelling in your heart. So he says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And he uses it in both, both uh, terms. He says it of the individual and he says it of that local church at Corinth. Your body is the temple of God. And it says you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, he bought you and paid for you, purchased you with his shed blood. Jesus did. And he says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we need to, to realize that uh, the hope of Israel is our hope. It says, let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Well, I got one psalm. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. We got one, didn't we?